Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild card! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. I'm Nick Seipel. On today's show, we'll be taking a look at the latest bad news for Boeing and how airlines are faring in the coronavirus recovery. Here to help me break it all down is Motley Fool contributor Lou Whiteman. Lou, welcome back on the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. It's great to have you on the show, Lou. As I said, it's it's Thursday, uh, but we're on this short week with Labor Day, so I'm still kind of kind of out of whack a little bit. Did you do anything fun for the long weekend? You know, I'm in Atlanta, and we finally got that Chamber of Commerce weekend where the humidity disappeared. So yeah, we were outside three straight days, went paddleboarding on the Chattahoochee, found out paddleboarding on rivers with rapids is a ton of fun. So uh, whenever you all are around Atlanta, come on out. I'll show you. Yeah, so, so we kind of did the same thing. We went over to Harpers Ferry, West Virginia, and hiked around the historic town and, and all that kind of stuff right on the intersection of the Potomac and, and uh, some other rivers right there. So it's very beautiful. Great to get outside. And did a fancy football draft. Maybe we'll talk a little bit about the NFL here at the end of the show. As I said off the top, we're going to talk about Boeing and aerospace. But first, before we get into that main topic, I'd be remiss if we didn't talk at least a little bit about Tesla. It's been a wild couple weeks uh, for the company. Last Monday, August 31st, completed a five-for-one Stock split over the course of the week on Friday completed a $5 billion issuance of stock. And then over the weekend, we got news that the company had not been added to the S&P 500 and that SoftBank uh, had been building a, a bullish options bet on Tesla as well as a number of, number of other tech companies. That then sent the stock down over 20% on Tuesday when trading resumed, but it's since rallied back the past couple of days. Lou, I mean, so much news all in one week. I know Tesla, uh, Tesla usually grabs headlines, but this has been a crazy couple of weeks, even for Tesla. Yeah, so it's so hard to pick what to talk about here because yeah, there you could do a show on any of those things, right? But let if I could, let's focus in on that five billion dollar offering because that's of uh, that's the thing that really stands out to me. Uh, both the size of it at just five billion dollars and the way it was done at the market. Uh, you know, whatever you think of Tesla, if you're bull or bear, it's up three hundred percent for the year. This is a company with fifteen billion dollars in debt, seven or eight billion without the leases. They have a ton of projects they're working on, a lot of CapEx. Why they only raised $5 billion and the way they did it, I, I wonder, I, 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 that could really haunt them. I, they had a chance to really shut up the haters and get down to work, it seems like. And uh, it just surprised me. It was a pretty wimpy offering. Is one of those things you expected them to to issue some stock, just given you know how how much the stock has run up, and you mentioned all these projects having access to capital, uh, certainly a big advantage for the company. Uh, we'll see where things go, but I'm sure Tesla will keep keep grabbing uh, the headlines. It's worth noting, you know, they had that big sell off on Tuesday. The stock is still up over 30 percent in the past month, and it's way back to where it was in the middle of August. And so grabbing a lot of headlines where the stock is moving, but uh, put in context with where it's gone over the past year, uh, kind of an insignificant move. Which is funny to say when the stock sells off twenty percent, right? Oh yeah, but but I mean yeah, but what is I mean this point was made. I forget who it was. Maybe it was on a on the weekend show that you know. I mean this stock could lose half its value and still be up for the year. It's just it, it it's just there's nothing like. It. <laughs> yeah, the volatility I think I think is pretty incredible for for something of that market cap. Uh, really exciting stock. I, I'll keep following it, but uh, you know there's not much more to say there than uh, you know it's new news. 
every day uh, with this company. Moving on to Boeing, uh, kind of our main topic for today. We've discussed on the podcast in the past the issues that Boeing has faced with the 737 MAX and the grounding of that plane. In the past week, we've had new issues come out with regard to the Boeing 787 Dreamliner uh, that's led to some of those airplanes being grounded. Lou, what do investors need to know about this 787 Dreamliner story? So this is the the 787 is Boeing's first uh, carbon plane. It's a it's a new way of making planes, and it was very controversial when it was first proposed. But it it's been a good performer. This is the first time we've had issues with the uh, with the way it's manufactured, where it's actually threatening to ground planes. Uh, in this case, it's two separate issues, both in the rear part of the plane. Either one of them isn't considered to be dangerous, but combined, the two issues in the same part of the plane could lead to questions about the structural integrity of the plane under under flying conditions. As far as we know, it's it's less than 12 planes that are affected. Uh, it's kind of scary to think that a, a much larger number of planes have one of the two issues. But uh, right now, we're still in the in, in the I guess, fact-finding. The news now, we knew all this about a couple of weeks ago. The news in the last week or so is the FAA hasn't gotten involved as as we knew they would. And so now we're trying to figure out exactly what to do about this and uh, how to figure out how deep it runs. So when you put this in context with how significant the 737 MAX story has been for Boeing, what's the relative importance to the business and the investment case for Boeing, uh, this, the, the Dreamliner? But just to give some perspective, uh, you know, Boeing's backlog throughout this has remained more than 4,000 planes. Variants of the 737, largely the MAX, but also older generations, make up nearly 80% of that backlog. The 787 is another 10%. So now we're talking about potential issues or reputational damage to 90% of that backlog. I don't think this is a repeat of the 737 MAX. It seems like it's not going to be that big. The real frightening thing for me as a as someone looking at Boeing stock is, you know, it, this is a little dated, but back in, uh, I think it was December, Bank of America put out a, a survey where they, I think they found it was almost 75% of respondents would try and rebook if they found out they were on a 737 MAX. Boeing has really needs to make sure that this remains a 737 MAX issue and not a Boeing issue. Because if it becomes a word association with Boeing, then you have real problems. So I, I, I think it's more a reputational risk right now than it is a financial hit. The 737 MAX has been just devastating financially. It doesn't look like, as far as the numbers go, this is going to be a repeat of that. But you know, this is a company that can ill afford to take a reputation hit, and this doesn't look good. Yeah, I think in the past on the podcast, I'd maybe compared it to, to Wells Fargo and that you get these these first bad news comes out and you think it's clear. And if they can get this figured out, well, everything you know will be back to normal. And then the hits keep on coming and you find out that maybe it's it's more systemic or or at least that perception is out there. And if even that perception is out there, it can affect sales. I remember I was looking at, you wrote an article about the effects of this 787 Dreamliner. You can go read it on fool.com. It's 787 Dreamliner grounding raises new headwinds for Boeing stock. In there, you mentioned when it comes to the backlog of Boeing, Boeing's net orders are down significantly this year. But if you look at Airbus, they may actually be taking share because they have, they've had an increase in net orders. Can you talk about how this maybe is changing the nature of the duopoly between Boeing and Airbus? 
Yes, I believe that was on 737 versus the 320, which is the comparable plane from Airbus. Yeah, neither of them are having a great year. It's about a negative 400, I think, for uh, 737s on, it's for cancellations outweighing orders. Uh, Airbus has, it's about plus 200. Uh, you know, I, I, I think for me, the real danger here, if you're looking at Boeing stock is, I, and people, bulls love to talk about the duopoly. And the fact that you really only have two choices, there's a lot of demand. So whether you want to go with Boeing or not, you have to. Boeing will sell planes. And I agree with that. But this is an industry with a lot of fixed costs. This is an industry where it is the later prints of the plane that are really the most profitable because all of the you have so much R&D, so much tooling, so much to get into the initial batch that those extra sales, the sales that make it that, that take the model from a decent seller to a great seller, those are the ones driving profit. So even if Boeing continues to be able to sell airplanes, just a marginal few sales, just a few big customers saying, you know, we're going to go the other way, that can make a huge difference in profitability, which in turn can make a huge difference on future R&D spending, which can really set the business back for a long time. And that, I think, it's much more subtle than no one's going to buy a Boeing airplane. You know, people... Boeing, Boeing is going to get sales, but it's those incremental sales that just a couple of people changing their mind because of all of this. It can have a profound lingering effect, and, and it's, it's much harder to get out. We got to see it play out. But that, to me, is the fear right now. Yeah, so we'll continue watching how developments in Boeing affect their reputation and affect their sales to see how they perform. Well, just one more thing, too, I want to say, too, because I've heard a lot, of, I've gotten a lot of feedback on Twitter. People talk about how, you know, the the cancellation numbers aren't that bad. We still have this backlog. And uh, I'm, I'm going to borrow this from the Teal Group. This isn't my work. But in our last downturn from 2001 to 2003, Boeing saw a reduction in its backlog of only about 500 planes. And much of that can be accounted for by deliveries. So in, effect, in fact, there weren't a lot of cancellations. Yet, Boeing was forced to cut production by 30%. So looking at cancellations, with the way airlines have a real ability to defer orders, saying instead of taking them in 2021, we're going to take it in 2023, 2024. That isn't a cancellation. It stays on the books, but it has a real effect on the manufacturing, the near-term profitability, cash flows. So just be careful if you're looking at the order book and saying they're fine, because it's a lot harder to get at what's going on. Right. And so, so we talked about on this first part of the show, the Dreamliner, how that could affect reputational issues at the company, as well as the 737 MAX. You got to get that plane approved before you can resume sales. But another important factor is just what is the demand for air travel? Are uh, passenger airplanes going to be in demand? Are airlines going to be adding to their fleets? That's been really up in the air this year with the global coronavirus pandemic. When you look at the data so far this year, Lou, what is that telling us about the current demand situation for air travel and the extent to which that is recovering? Well, is the glass half full or is the glass half empty? I think it's, it's how you want to look at it. Uh, the good news is that uh, if you use the TSA numbers, so these are the number of people being screened in an airport daily, which is a pretty good way of getting real-time information. We are up 9x over our April lows, which is a great improvement. However, we're also barely at half of the daily volumes where we were last year. Almost 
all of what we've seen is leisure travel and not business. That can be an issue because for one thing, it's seasonal. Now that Labor Day has come and gone, we're likely going to see that fall off considerably. It's also less lucrative. In fact, usually in a recession, the leisure traffic comes back first because it's easier to stimulate with low fares. And that, in fact, that's what we've seen. You know, it's people traveling because it's really cheap. So we're both in a position where things are slowly coming off the bottom and the real panic is over, but we are a long way back from normal. And I don't see any reason to see it, think it's going to be 2022 at the earliest before we really see pre-pandemic levels. You said we're up 9x kind of from the bottom. So do you think the bottom is in when it comes to air travel? Is that, is that, that fair to say? And then it's the question of the speed of recovery at this point? I think so. I mean, it's so hard. I mean, we're talking about a pandemic here, so it's really hard to say what the future holds. You know, once your SEC football gets going and we have you know, everyone's back in the stadiums, who knows? But uh, barring the unforeseen, it does seem like we're off our lows. We have some semblance of normality is coming back. Uh, however, absent a vaccine, and I think even, even if you're an optimist, a widely distributed vaccine, we're talking maybe, hopefully, in time for the summer travel season next year. But we, I mean, we're definitely talking six months away before it is widely distributed. And there's just no way we're going to see a recovery. Business travel, it's likely going to be 2023, even before we see that coming back. And so when you look at the, these companies, what we saw following the pandemic and, and travel being shut down, airlines really tap into massive amounts of capital. I pulled a number from, from one of your articles, Lou, $50 billion in debt and equity financing, coupled with a similar amount uh, a federal from the federal government. When it comes to needing to tap equity and debt markets, needing to continue to raise cash to keep the company afloat, any thoughts there as to whether the companies are out of the woods? One of the really unappreciated points coming into this was, and this is an industry that every time there's been a downturn, we've seen bankruptcies. In some cases, you know, multiple times companies have gone bankrupt. I mean, think of the names just in, in my lifetime, uh, Eastern Airways, TWA, Pan Am. There's so many historic names that just cease to exist every because every time there was a downturn, they got in trouble. People really kind of assume that going into this when, in fact, the industry has never been more healthy coming into that. And relatively speaking, they've held up really well. Yes, they've taken on a ton of debt and that's going to haunt the balance sheet for years. But the fact was they were able to take it on. We're in a weird position now where most of the big airlines are burning through $25 million a day. Yet uh, United Airlines just gave an update. They they're going to have $18 billion in liquidity at the end of the quarter. So we're both in a really bad situation, but a situation they can handle. And I think that's the status quo. It's, it's been interesting. If you look at the stocks since April or May, it's almost been just a macro bet on where the what's going on with the vaccine and the economy. On good news, regardless of what's going on with an individual company, on days when there's good news about a potential vaccine, the airlines all trade up and, and lockstep. On days where there's an economic indicator that indicates things aren't going well, the airlines have been trading down. And I, I think that's how it's going to continue for some time because there's just, they can survive this, but they can't thrive in this. So it's kind of just chugging along till it's over. So Lou, one question I had for you, and maybe this, this is 
maybe a little bit of a tangent from our from our core topic, but it's something I, I've thought about uh, as, as as I've been reading about some of the financing uh, these airline companies have been able to do. So both American and, and United uh, over the summer pledged their frequent flyer pro- programs as collateral against about $5 billion in loans they each received from the government. And so you see this, uh, these frequent flyer programs are an asset uh, that airlines can tap into to get access to, to capital. You've seen some airlines in the past actually spin off their frequent flyer programs. That raises a question for me, Lou. When, when I think about frequent flyer miles and what those programs are, I accumulate frequent flyer miles as a customer. That Those miles over time entitle me to exchange them for goods and services. And so from my perspective, they kind of sound like a liability more so than an asset. So, so I guess why are these frequent flyer programs worth money that that uh, you can pledge them as collateral? Uh, what is the value for these programs separate and apart from the value they hold for the airline companies themselves? So you have to separate out the miles from the programs. You're right. The miles on an individual basis are a liability. They are an IOU. The programs can be profitable because they allow the airlines to pre-sell those miles to partners who are going to give them away, most notably the credit card companies that use that use them and give them to you when you use their credit card. So the programs can be a generator of revenue, even though you are selling something that becomes a liability on your balance sheet. Airlines hate to talk about the details on this, but we had when Delta reached a new agreement with American Express, uh, Delta said by the end of that agreement, I believe it's the back end of this decade, it should be worth $7 billion a year for them in revenue. Now, uh, in the case of Amex, I think the Delta card is something like 10% of their total receivables. So that is a very important relationship for Amex too. But really what it is, it is it is a source of revenue for the miles. It's also a pretty good mailing list. It's a great loyalty program because you know demographics. You know the, What the TSA requires you to the, the data you need on your customers, that is a marketer's dream. So in a way, it's just a very, very good affinity program or a loyalty program that has a lot of data that they can monetize, uh, whether the customer wants it or not, I guess. Right. So yeah, never underestimate the value of data, I guess. <laughs> uh, so along that side of kind of relationship between airlines and customers, we've seen some other developments as well more recently. So on August 31st, I believe United announced that they were removing change fees on all domestic flights, which has resulted in other airlines, including American and Delta, quickly following suit. You see this change, uh, eliminating change fees. How does that affect the aviation business moving forward? So this is, we've had a trend over the last decade or so of more a la carte pricing where they're all competing on price, but the especially these legacy airlines, United, Delta, and uh, American, would claim, well, you know, we're giving you more with that ticket than some of these discounters are. That really wasn't that, that, that wasn't an effective way to go in a world where people are just comparing prices online. So the way the airlines made this work was they both lowered their ticket prices but emphasized the fees or the what they could charge you for after you have the ticket a big cog of that was these change 
fees, and that's one cog that's gone. I think it'll adjust. It's only one fee, but it, it, it's a great consumer thing. You know, everybody loves to talk about the way the airlines nickel and dime you. They're not wrong. And uh, United, it's, you know, Scott Kirby just took over United. He has been with American and its predecessors all the way back to America West. He's about the smartest person in the industry. And he, he frankly, he's the one thing I like about United Airlines right now as a stock. And uh, this is really smart. This is a way for them to get their name out and say, we did this. And uh, marginally, it's going to have an impact. But over the long haul, they need revenue right now. And um, you know, y- you can manage around this. This is a few hundred million dollars in fees total. And uh, you know, th- they'll find a way around it. it. It's great news for the consumer. Right. So I, I saw uh, a number that United had brought in $600 million in fee income last year. So clearly giving up some of that income in exchange for juicing demand uh, in this time where, where air travel demand is much lower than it is, has been historically. Uh, so one question I had is, is prior to this end of, of change fees, Southwest had been uh, of the big four airlines, uh, the only one that did not charge those fees. Does this affect Southwest in any meaningful way now that the rest of the market ha- has matched Southwest's offering? I'll answer this more as a consumer than anything else, but I think the one differentiating fee that Southwest still has is the bag fee uh, or the lack of a bag fee. I, I think that's the one that people really anchor to, and they still have that going for them. Uh, Southwest is is a brand that's bigger than any one fee or any collection of fees. People like Southwest, so I would be surprised if this really moves the needle for them. Well, and I suppose Southwest has already built their business model around not having to have these fees, whereas the other airlines are going to have to absorb it in some way, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, so the next thing we'll be watching coming up for airlines is I believe it's the end of this month. Restrictions expire on that that federal loan that the major airlines received. And those restrictions uh, prohibited the airlines from engaging in layoffs um, and that sort of thing before uh, September 31st. What do we know so far about what the airlines will do when those restrictions expire at the end of the month? It's going to be ugly. And uh, yeah, as you say, so the CARES Act, the airlines got about $50 billion from the government. $25 billion of that was in payroll support, and it was conditioned on no involuntary separations through September 30th. And the idea of the time is, is hopefully this is a short-term blip uh, we'll get, we'll buy the industry time before they make drastic decisions. Uh, we're coming up on September 30th. Things aren't getting a lot better. These airlines are going to get smaller. American, which is the largest employer, about 140,000 jobs. They've said they're going to lose 40,000 jobs total between involuntary and voluntary separation. Uh, United did reach a deal with its pilots, so they're going to avoid furloughs. We don't exactly know what that means yet, but it's probably some sort of give backs elsewhere, fewer guaranteed hours, something like that. Uh, Southwest has a deal in place. A couple of the smaller ones do, but the onus is really now on, I'd say, Delta and American to work something out with their pilots because otherwise there could be bad feelings. I mean, you don't want bad labor relations with your pilots. Uh, Delta, Delta's only major union is their pilot. So they have a little more flexibility here versus American. Uh, American has a lot of unions that are watching this. And uh, you really worry American is a company that was trying to get 
airborne anyway, this could get really ugly if they have to cut a third of their workforce and they aren't in harmony with their unions as they do it. Yeah, it's, it's a difficult situation uh, to be in. Yeah, and for, for our listeners, yeah, there aren't 31 days in September. So yeah, Lou's right. Thir- September 30th is, is the deadline. Uh, we'll be waiting a long time or we're waiting for September 31st. The airlines um, would probably be okay with that if we could somehow make bills <laughs> do then too, okay? <laughs> right, right, right. Um, so kind of coming back to, to where we were earlier on the show, back in March, the outcome for airlines was probably more uncertain than it's, it's ever been, or at least it's been in a really long time. Now we're six months removed from that. How much more clarity is there for investors, or, or, or are we still really uncertain about the future for this industry? So I believe, and I, I, I don't think there is a lot of clarity as in lock it in stone, but I believe there is significantly more clarity to the downside. The fear in March was that we were going to have a repeat of last down, previous downturns and there were going to be multiple bankruptcies in the industry. We are through the worst of it. Nobody has filed. I am optimistic. I don't know if I'd really bet on it, but I am optimistic that we can go without any U.S. airline filing for bankruptcy. Uh, Definitely, there are a few names that I think have all but ensured they can make it through. So we have a lot more clarity on the downside. We don't have a lot of clarity on when the upside will come. I do believe if you just look at the valuations, if you believe air traffic will return eventually, there is some real upside here. There's also an opportunity cost in maybe waiting years to see that. But um, I I, I do feel like if, if it helps people sleep at night, I, I did not sell the airline stocks I own. I am down on them, but I do not worry that they are going to go to zero. And I was trying to figure that out desperately from my own portfolio back in March, I'll admit. Yeah, so it's a lot more certain than when Warren Buffett sold back in March now. So now we have a little bit more clarity uh, uh, and maybe a little bit more comfortable holding it today than maybe back then. Mm-hmm. So it you know, brings to the question of, you know, would you buy the stocks? What would you do? We talked about three different companies slash industries today. We talked about Tesla, Boeing, and then the commercial airline industry. For those three categories, maybe pick it, pick your favorite airline stock for that thir- third category. You have to buy one, sell one, hold one. Tell me which ones they are and why. All right. I'm probably selling Boeing just because I don't trust it. And I know it's a ways down. I sort of, if you made me guess, I would probably think that absent some new disaster with the 737 MAX, that we're not going to retrace that bottom when they were down 70%. But even if, if you look at how long I just said it's going to take the airlines to come back, I think Boeing is going to take longer. They just have real issues and it's become a show me story. I want to see that they can do things right I'm not going to take it for granted anymore. Uh, Tesla, I don't have any desire to own, short, do anything with Tesla. Tesla, to me, I mean, I'm an old industrial guy. They're trading at more than $1 million per vehicle delivered uh, in the last year. Even if you, I will concede the potential, I can't get to that number. That said, with the potential, I I wouldn't bet on it going down either. So I guess if I held Tesla today, I would probably keep holding it. Uh, The airlines, I really do think Southwest is safe. I really think Delta is safe. But just for fun and be a little more speculative, I will buy Spirit Airlines, which is much smaller and much 
less likely to survive, I guess, if things go really bad. But Spirit has the lowest costs in the business. They have lower costs than Southwest. And if the next year goes the way I think it is, where we have mostly leisure travel and it maybe starts to come back for a big summer, we're going to see a lot of discounting. We're going to be seeing a lot of fares, fares, sales to try and get people to fly. Spirit is well set up for that battle. And uh, it's got a huge, it, it's got a lot of risk, but it's got a lot of upside. So um, we'll go on a limb and say that. All right, folks, if you want to add Spirit to your watch list, that ticker is SAVE, S-A-V-E. Really fun ticker, easy one uh, to remember. Before I let you go, Lou, sports are back. It's Thursday. Uh, we've got the defending champion Kansas City Chiefs hosting the Houston Texans tonight. Will you be watching the game? You see, Nick, I had prepped for this. When you told me we were going to talk about the return of football, I assumed you meant my Watford playing Middlesbrough tomorrow in the return of the league championship, right? Well, tell, uh, tell so, me about that. I'd love to hear about it, yeah. Oh, you know, it's going to be a big season. Watford was just relegated, and uh, we need to get back because you want to talk about the, it's. It's interesting. The one place where the Europeans have us on capitalism is sports. You know, you fall down. You, relegation is nasty. You see your revenue drop by 90%. So yeah, that's a big deal. As for uh, the NFL, all I really know is to use the Gardner Brothers, winners win. So I'm going to take Kansas City until until they lose, and then I'll move on from there. Yeah, I'm with you on Kansas City. I looked up uh, what, what our friends out in the desert uh, have the line at for the game. It's Chiefs minus nine and a half. I think the Chiefs win. I think that nine and a half points is a lot, so maybe they don't cover. Uh, but we'll see. I'll be watching it. I'm excited to have the NFL back, and I'm always excited to have you on the podcast as always, Luke. Well, thank you. Sorry for the uh, audio issues, but hopefully we'll all work out. <laughs> hey, we'll make it. Tim Sparks is a superstar, uh, so, so we'll get it figured out. As always, people on the program – may own companies discussed on the show and the motley fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear thanks to tim sparks for mixing the show for lou whiteman i'm nick seipel thanks for listening and fool on